Hello, welcome to Season 2, Episode 8 of the Warfighter Podcast. Colin, good morning. Good morning, coming to you from Slightly Husky. As soon as the holiday season comes around, there is not one person that I know that hasn't had some sort of lurgy. I'm glad that you and I seem to kind of <laughs> change it in between each other, so there's always one that can try and speak slowly and coherently. I think the body's quite good at putting stuff off like illness and then it just goes, right, I'm just going to shut down for a week and uh, let you deal with this. When your job depends on your voice, it's terrible. You know, that's your yeah. career. In this interview, you just were not pulling your weight, Colin. But on the other... Uh, no, if I, was, if I was unnaturally quiet, that's why. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I had a really interesting, while I was still trying not to die, really <laughs> interesting intersection between work and uh, life over the weekend. Interesting. Um, the Christmas period is very busy because our, our oldest boy, born on the 3rd of January. Mm. So it's like Christmas straight to birthday. And, Poor guy. Um, Poor Fanny. Uh, <laughs> well, you, you, yeah, he was early as well. So it's not entirely okay. ballplay. <laughs> yeah, but what we did for this birthday treat is we took 12 kids to a VR experience. Not a treat for yourself then. Well, I didn't have a go because there was enough places. And it would be unfair because I'd be too competitive. But um, <laughs> I thought there was, there was some really interesting aspects to it, which mm-hmm. I'll just bore you all with. So this was a group of 12, 8 to 10-year-olds, boys and girls. I think they were standard sort of, I don't know, second generation Oculus, pretty out-of-the-box games, uh, shoot-em-up games, that sort of thing. The first thing I thought was really interesting is zero training time. And so <laughs> every kid, it wasn't like, if it was an adult, I'm pretty sure they'd be going, uh, which button do I shoot with? Which, you know, kids are like, yeah, no, got it, fine. Off they went. Totally happy. But the only thing was two kids in the lobby, it was too much for. They were too scared. When you take them to go and play Resident Evil when they're eight years old, I mean, what do you expect? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it, well, it, was, it, it was more, it was like shoot the alien, shoot the bows and arrows. It wasn't like, okay, it okay. wasn't sort of quite Doom or anything. But, um, <laughs> so that was, that was interesting. But the operators of this clearly had dealt with this problem before. So they're like, right. We've got the game for you. We've got the make the hamburger game, which I thought, oh, they're going to be bored now. But they love that. They play that half hour making hamburgers. And another demonstration of actually you can switch very quickly to a different training scenario and not lose time. You know, so that was that was really interesting. And the other one, which I thought was an interesting observation, was some of these kids have been playing various games on the Xbox and stuff before, so they're all happy with that. But when they went into the VR world, this concept of cover actually translated to muscle movements. So they're all popping up and ducking down, mm-hmm. as they should. And I thought it was quite good. Half of them were rubbish, and I was getting a shot straight away. <laughs> but half of them were operating good concealment. You know, we're often taught in training that that system will be negative training because you have the muscle memory and you'll have to relearn it. And actually, some of that's not true. It, there's very little negative training, even though you're moving from a system that which is not fully VR, just virtual, to VR. Mm-hmm. Actually, it, it's quite easy to translate across. So, yeah, I thought it was, it was quite an interesting little observation. We should do more of that sort of stuff to understand how this sort of training translates. Clearly, the younger generation have no problem with this. Well, that is it. Speaking as a man who's trained a lot of grown-ups, people in the military and VR, and it does take a bit of time and a bit of onboarding and getting used to motion sickness and or not used to it, kind of mitigating the effects of motion sickness and exposing them bit by bit to it takes about half an hour or so 45 minutes depending on who they are but then i've also used the same system with the army cadet force and it is night and day <laughs> it's a pleasure with the army cadet force <laughs> it's no effort no stress they love it. none of them are sick either none of them are sick. no no they, they 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 come back in their spare time to use it and they're really engaged and they so 
it's just that generation coming through. And again, it's just about defense. If we want to make sure that we've got the software to engage the next generation, it's aiming off for that as well. Now that I'm suggesting that virtual reality is a solution to all problems, okay, before people start writing in. So it's worth thanking our sponsors, Babcock International. They have been and continue to be fundamental throughout this whole series and just shows an organization that wants to add to the general knowledge pool, not kind of hoarding it for themselves. Because this episode is about, it's kind of harking back to season one, education learning. So we've actually picked a specific topic to educate on. And that obviously that topic is Tez or Miles. And I'm going to hand over to you, Colin, to give a very brief overview of the topics covered during this chat. And then we'll introduce the guest. Yeah, well, look, this is something I think we wanted to cover for a while because it really is fundamental to a lot of what the army do for pre-deployment training. That's TES, which is tactical engagement system. Mm-hmm. And as we comically call it, laser tag for the army. But we'll be put right shortly, don't worry. <laughs> yeah. um, so live instrumentation of the battlefield. The British Army certainly have stated that they don't want to lose that ability to go and test in the real environments because funny stuff happens when you get out in the field and in the dirt and things you don't expect. So the realities and hardships of operating in the natural environment so it's one of those subjects I think you think should be fairly straightforward, but actually when you get into it, there's so many dimensions and so many trade-offs and it's like, well, how do you measure the fight when you're not actually shooting bullets at each other? Because I believe that's sort of ethically problematic to do, uh, so they, they can't do that anymore. How do you instrument this correctly and maintain a fair fight? Which elements do you include and not include? There's no clear answer, but it's really fascinating to dig into the subject. So I think Andy Gales, who we asked to come and speak about this, has huge in-depth experience of this, both within the British Army and now working for Cubic, amongst others, one of the companies that deliver elements of TES. They're all struggling with the same challenges, and I think it's really interesting to sort of dig into what those are and understand that. Andy, before I say anything poorly, can you give us an introduction? (laughs) Just for the listeners' benefit, this is the fifth attempt at college with the introduction, so I thought it was worth mentioning. Go on, Andy. Good to meet you. Yeah, who'd have thought there was anything difficult in saying the surname Gales? It's not even two dads, is it? It's not even double barrel, but there you go. Uh, yeah, so uh, delighted to be here. Andy Gales, background, why am I here? Up front, I work for Cubic Defence in a business development role right now, but that's not really why I'm here. I've been in the Army since the mid-90s, volunteered out in 2012 and came into industry Devon and Dorset, then rifles, all the usual roles, platoon commander, in company commander to IC. But way back in the distant mists of time when the army still sent people away to go and do year-long master's degrees, I got sent off to go and do design of information systems at Shrivenham for a year. So that meant throughout the whole of my military career, I bounced between combat job, regimental at e-job, which was invariably a technical job, and then back to a combat job again. And that means I've been around training, simulation training and technology in the army and done user contracts and sponsor. Really, I first touched TES in 97 and I'm still working alongside TES today. Here we are in 2024. Now, yes, with a filthy contractor, I get it. But have seen how TES has developed, what the militaries have tried to do with it throughout that period of time. And Colin, that's why I'm here, right? Yes, and, and I think what we'd like to do is dig into a little bit about this. So TES, which stands for Tactical Engagement System, and I guess that tells you everything you need to know. Well, that's it. We can cut the recording now. <laughs> you know, that's all you need to know. But what is it? And I think it's probably better to start with, because it's evolutionary thing, what is it expected to do today? 
Well, it's supposed to be the instrumentation of an all-arms manoeuvre element, be that platoon, section, subunit, all the way up to potentially, if you look at what the US does, brigade combat team. And it's a way of instrumenting what the soldiers and the battlefield systems do when they fight each other, interact with each other. And it's a way of determining the outcomes of those interactions. Let me paraphrase for those that are the uninitiated. Does that basically mean it's laser quest for the army? Is that what you're trying to say? No? That's what it started as being. Uh-huh. So a bit of history. I can't remember the exact date. Somewhere in the 80s, the US was one of the first. There were other systems first brought in exactly that. Laser Quest. Uh, what was it for? And there were two kind of philosophies. There was a European philosophy, which that it was for a squad, a section up to a platoon to play Laser Quest. I'm old enough, and I'm sure many people on this today won't remember that when you used to do an exercise, you'd lie on the ground, you'd fire at a position, and there'd be directing staff behind you, and they'd walk along going, you, you, and you were dead. And at the other end, there'd be directing staff going, you, you, and you were dead. This thing called Laser Quest came in and we put this harness on and we put this good, big heavy thing on the end of a barrel, fired a laser, and when you shot at somebody, your harness beeped in a way. That was the beginning of tactical engagement simulation. And the different kind of philosophies, the early European adopting nations made sure every soldier got one. And the US initially was giving it to every other soldier or squad leaders because they brought it in for leadership training and Europe brought it in for soldier level training. And that kind of differentiated the early days. And mm. then it sort of grew in number. So it went from squad to platoon to subunit. And then people started wanting to instrument vehicles in main battle tanks. Then people wanted to instrument everything else that goes in the battle space. And that was support weapons, so anti-tank weapons. But stop, nothing indirect. Uh -huh. turn, no howitzer, no rocket. It was all about direct maneuver. So when I first touched it in 1997, 98, when the D&Ds came back from Paderborn and we went to the Combined Arms Training Centre Battle Group in Warminster, which was known as the Demonstration Battalion, which was a unit that was taken out the senior armoured infantry role and brought back and was the British Army's enemy on Salisbury Plain. We're lucky enough to do that for two and a half years. <laughs> but then once a month, I went on tactical engagement simulation exercise, TESEX, and there was no instrumentation of, or no tracking rather, of vehicles. So at the end of every exercise, every soldier would hand in this data card. The data cards would get taken out of the vehicles. They'd go to a computer, and you get this massive sheet, and this is how old I am, green and white barred paper that would come out of the printer, and it would have the serial number. It would then have how many engagements, what they hit, and how successful they were. And nobody ever looked at it. Because you didn't really need to. What, what was the system brought into? It was brought in for you to have some sort of realism when you shot at something. Uh -huh. And that allowed the big exercises to flow more smoothly. And that's where you ended up with observer mentors still being out on the ground, but watching what was going on and being an informed umpire as to how the exercises were going. And then the next big stage of development was really instrumenting, as in tracking everything on the battlefield. And that's when you got into area weapons effect simulation. And at that point, you start bringing in where people are in time and space what is shooting at what and what the outcome of that then goes into an exercise control. That happened about 2000, 2002 in the UK. And at that point, you have this exercise control building, analysts sitting in there and observer mentors can then go back in and monitor what's happening on the battlefield. And perhaps most importantly, certainly when I was an observer mentor, you could then go in, chat to your analysts, put an after action. 
you together and then get in front of an element of the troops under exercise. And again, the whole idea is to get away from, I said, you said, he said, and you get into an argument about what happened. Mm -hmm. You pick elements of the battle, you play it back, and you get people to discuss why they made what decision and why. And that is really tranche one of what happened in the direct fire maneuver battle. That's tactical engagement simulation. Slightly jump in there because that's what was my first experience of Tez was with the Danish army, I think, um, back in 2007. And, you know, it really st- up until before that, obviously, I hadn't used anything that, that, that tracked any fire. It was all blank fire. And, and that was obviously has an effect and there's this training value from it. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it and still do it today, despite things maybe changing. We can discuss that later. But, it was the psychological change in your process, your thought process is, is absolutely, it's night and day compared to blank fire and, and Tez. It was a platoon attack lane and we were, we were playing the op four for the lane and it was the first attack and I was extreme. I was very, you know, very about 19 at the time or 20, very excited. I was using their weapon system, which is like the, the MG, whatever it was, 42 equivalent, a new, newer variant of it. So it fires really quick. I was really excited by it as you'd expect. And Anyway, it was three o'clock in the morning. I was sat there on my position. And the, the first thing I knew about it was bang, 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 beep, beep, beep. I was the first person to get shot. Never got a round off. <laughs> and, and that was the end. And I was, I was absolutely mortified by that. But funnily enough, guess what? I changed what I did the next time. And even just playing op for using Tez, you learn so much. It's a valuable, valuable system. Yeah, really great. And I think as we've gone through over time, that system has been great for what it's been designed to do. Uh-huh. If you look at what it was brought in to do in 98, 2002, and then there was a refresh of the system 2012, I think it was, when British Army was trying to get two brigades at a time you know, around 2009 to get ready to go out and do Iraq and Afghanistan. On that rotation, more equipment was needed, so equipment was refreshed and brought out. But I think Collector Training Transformation Program, there's simulation training programs in the US, there are training programs around the world where people are trying to refresh what they're doing with TEZ. And that's a mixture of technologies clearly changed and how you can go about things has clearly changed and how nations want to train has changed. I think the big one, and I know we want to get on to interoperability standards, and the big thing that has changed is previously countries would buy this equipment largely in isolation. America had the first big system, but there were areas in Europe had another system and two prime manufacturers, Saab and Cubic, uh, but you know, Lockheed Martin were making equipment, GDI made equipment, RUAG making equipment, Talos had bought RUAGs. So there are lots of companies over the years, and I've missed a couple, have made this sort of equipment. And it was a really a custom bespoke made equipment for a country's request. There are clearly some elements. A lot of the European nations were insisting with some of the manufacturers they were using that there was more commonality and the, there was the American system. And that led to, really, I think, for the Tez world, a sort of VHS Betamax moment. How are you going to get the systems to allow you to work together? Because initially, if you're going to train with another nation, you would turn up with your soldiers and your fighting equipment. Then you would look at a way to put their Tez equipment on your equipment. And these would be small force components inside larger exercises. And so nations might have enough equipment to allow you to do that. The classic for the UK would be when the Dutch Marines would turn up or where the Danes turned up part of preparation training to go to Iraq and Afghanistan and they get worked system. But more and more, and particularly for the UK, is it wants to train in an expeditionary way. 
So it wants to go to either a new piece of turf where there's no instrumentation or it wants to go to a host nation and bring its own instrumentation equipment with it so it's not a burden to the host nation. That's changed what people are having to do and how equipment's having to be manufactured. And in my urban combat advanced training role, which is a very, very long NATO way of saying life simulation interoperability standards working they set themselves up about 10 years ago trying to get after the question of how do you make combat training center technologies in various nations interoperable with each other? And it's really trying to get after the way armies are trying to change the way they're training. Why buy a bunch of kit if it doesn't do what you want it to do? But of course, people have invested quite heavily in large amounts of equipment. Some nations can afford to replace everything with a big bang. Most can't. And it's also how do you ensure that various manufacturers of this equipment manufacture equipment to a standard that will allow them all to work together. It's just not that simple. I mean, essentially, we're, we're talking about you could have different emitters, different detectors, even different XCOM systems. And I guess between all those levels, you've got to... I mean, laser interoperability is one thing, isn't it? But then it's all the other things that go on. Yeah, and in fairness to the UCAT group and the committee when they brought out their... ULAs, Urban Hyphen Laser emitter Emission Interoperability Standard. ULAs, good God, I remembered that. <laughs> um, when they brought that standard out, without wishing to be too geeky, really what they're getting after is the da-da-da, dit-dit-dit-da, Morse code type message that comes out the end of the laser emitter and how that's read by the detector to work out on the roll of a dice, because let's face it, it's a simulation system, so it does a roll of the dice. It's not a modeling system. There's a whole other conversation about the difference between a stochastic simulation and a deterministic modeling system. TES has firmly been, by all manufacturers, in the stochastic simulation end of the bracket, not the deterministic modeling system, although the French did have one for a while. So just because the message is right... And you can read the message that's coming at you. There are other things to worry about. There is the size of a laser cone that comes out the end of a emitter and how many figure 11 targets that crosses at what range. <laughs> there is what's the power of that laser coming out of the end of the emitter and does that overmatch the detectors? And this is, I'm not saying anybody did this deliberately. These are all things that people have found out as they've tried to bring the standard in. The classic is in Germany at Goetz where, if I remember rightly, it's a Rheinmetall soldier system, it's a Saab vehicle system, and the Dutch, whose armoured vehicles are embedded in the Bundeswehr, their armoured units go over and train in Germany, but of course they take their Saab soldier system with them to train. And one of the things they discovered is that when they fired their Saab system at the Rheinmetall soldier system, the Dutch emitter would emit at a higher power than the Rheinmetall system is set to do, so it would overpower the detectors on the Rheinmetall system. But the Rheinmetall system did it at a lower power because its cone size was smaller, so there was a potential that when the laser landed at close range, say below 50 metres on a soldier wearing a Saab system, the laser would fall between the detectors so it wouldn't register anything. I think that's an important point to tease out. So the laser, the size of the laser cone at 600 yards, well, I had realised the effective range is going to be less, but it's probably the size of a person, is it? Or I mean, I'll have to remember, but I'm sure in the early days, the acceptance standards, and I wasn't intimately involved with this at the time, 
but it was something like at 300 meters, you aimed at center of mass on a figure 11 and uh, you were allowed bleed over into half the neighboring figure 11 on either side. But as long as you registered a clear hit on the center figure 11, that was acceptance for the UK system. The systems have clearly moved on. One company now has put retro reflectors on there. So you get a message going forward and you get a message coming back. And that's a way to take some of that inaccuracy out. Other companies have reduce that laser cone size but if you do that you have to increase the power in order to get the range and so like everything it's a trade-off if you want something like a sniper rifle so you want to go out to long range you'll probably have greater power to get the range but you'll get greater bleed over on the outside of the laser which means you're probably too powerful at close range okay so <laughs> but now we come to a smaller range weapon system so your assault rifle where you probably say most of my engagements are 300, but really 150 meters and below. So you aim for a laser power to meet that range. But of course, when you then get into urban combat at sub room size, you know, you'd have sub 10 meters, sub five meters, sub two meters. There is a chance that laser might go between the detectors on some systems. So it's a constant trade-off. And that's the bit that I think, certainly if I was uh, you know, swinging the lantern back in uniform, sat in a procurement office trying to procure a simulation system, I would see ULAs as the way to get international interoperability for my systems. It's not quite that simple. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds like, and that was one of my question of which I'm sure there's not enough time to go into, but it's just, how do you even start attacking a problem like that? Because there isn't, there is never going to be, by the sounds of it, an answer. So, so then how do you sit around the table and essentially compromise your way to a solution that no one's going to be happy with? Well, and, and that's the problem at the moment. It's not quite anarchy. The systems work. You know, if you fire a ULA's code, you can go into the training paddock and you can shoot each other. But you have to be aware there might be some strange anomalies. For example, the Germans have got a workaround where they have to put covers on their detector sensors in order to get over that overpowering problem. The other thing that can happen is clearly you have DIS or HLA. So that's defense interoperability simulation lookup tables or high-level architecture lookup tables. So these are data sheets that sit behind the messages you are received which control the percentages of the roll of the dice to give you the outcome oh, this is great and just before you go into that so what kind of outcomes could people receive once they get hit so let's look at a dismounted soldier so you will get your first message the first thing you have to determine is what what is your potential hit so have i been hit so is it a near miss okay if i've been hit is it a kill you're straight out or is it a wounding Okay, it's not to kill, it's now wounding. Okay, what type of wounding is it? And some systems, as you may recall, will tell you what type of wounding it is. The next step of systems and things that are now being spoken about is, well, I want so many detectors on somebody that I can determine a left arm, a right arm, a front, back, a torso. Oh, right, well, from that, I will now determine what type of wounding you've got. I question that, actually. I start questioning that because, if I remember rightly, the physics of a 5.56 round hitting somebody... If I'm a soldier standing with half my body behind a wall, so my, my right arm is visible because I've got an SA-80 and that's the bet I've got to put around the corner of the wall to shoot, and the round enters me in my right shoulder, but it hits my collarbone and then therefore tumbles throughout my centre of mass and exits in my lower left hip. Just because I've got hit in the right arm doesn't mean I'm going to get a right arm wound. I might have a catastrophic organ failure in the centre of my body somewhere because of the physics of around when it actually hits you. Uh -huh. And that's the fundamental difference between this is simulation good enough to create training effect and what is modeling 
of a real world outcome to allow you to create statistics. Yeah. And then this is another conversation people are having, and I'll quickly cover this one off, and that is what data can I take from these exercises and how many training levels can I train at the same time? And therefore, what can I look at in tactics, techniques, and procedures and future organization structures and effectiveness of weapon systems? Fundamentally, the systems as they're built today are simulation systems. So there's a trade-off. There's lots of great data about how effective am I on a move round? How far do I go? How many rounds do I expend? Those sorts of things. But there is a point, and I'm not the deep data scientist to definitively say this, but really it's a trade-off between the data scientist, the informed military observer, and then really the physicist that understands the physics of the weapon system to say, you've pushed it as far as you can, actually. Now you're not characterizing what would really happen. And when people start talking about data analytics coming out of these exercises and what learning we get, absolutely there is. There's tons of great stuff we can look at. But as it sits today, it's not modeling the real world. So there is a point at which you have to acknowledge there are trade-offs. What I think is important is that the work UCAT's done is really great and that they've standardized this laser message. They're looking at standardizing the message sets between exercise control and exercise control. They're looking at standardizing the message sets around the player. So the network that allows peripheral things to talk to each other. And if you're in the back of an armored vehicle, there's a common message set to recognize you're in the armored vehicle or you're out of the armored vehicle. So you get the associated damage if the armored vehicle gets blown. Still looking at standardizing all of that. But what there isn't, there are some, you know, they're, they're fairly sterile standards. What really needs to come next, and hopefully we're about to start working on, is an implementation goal that says, if you want to be interoperable at the direct fire laser engagement level, here are the things you need to consider and tick off. All those things we've just discussed, without going through all the other things that I've mentioned, you have a guide that tells you how you go about that. And this is something the air world's done pretty well for a number of years. So in the air world, if you're going to red flag, which is the big exercise for all the combat aircraft out in Nellis, you know, Las Vegas, have to be Las Vegas, wouldn't it, pilots? But if you, if the RAF is turning up with a bunch of typhoons with, uh, and they will call level one interoperability, what is that? Okay, well, I understand that I'm going to, on my pod, on my aircraft, I will interoperate with your system with real-time, time-space position information, TISPI data. That's what's going to come off my aircraft. I've met the standard. You now know how to plug me into the exercise. Level two, real-time kill notification. Okay, that means I'm now getting a message off the aircraft. I've got TISPI, plus I now know when you pull the trigger in the aircraft, so you get that missile release off the rail, so I know I'm getting that information. And so it goes on to about five standards without going too deep. And I think the bit that's missing in this environment at the minute is that. For example, you could say level one interoperability means I've solved my direct fire engagement. So at the main battle tank, at the B vehicle, at the soldier level, I've sorted out the laser, the lookup table, the emitter, the detector, and all the other bits that go in. Done. Right, that's level one. Level two, for example, I've sorted out my network around the soldiers. So I know if I get into your armored vehicle, we're in a common message. Level three, I've sorted out XCOM to XCOM, so we can do that. And what that would really allow is it would allow procurers to clearly know what it is that they have to go and buy to be interoperable. If you're the poor old exercise planner and you've got a multinational exercise going on, having to look at that, well, I now know that the Danes are turning up and I'm going to get a common laser piece, but I can't take information off their soldiers to bring them into their exercise, so I need two radio. 
And these are just considerations and constraints and freedoms. But if you haven't got a clear language to discuss that, it makes exercise planning really difficult. It makes the life of a contract to try to make these exercises work really difficult. And it would just put everybody on a common language. So I think that's how you fix that. I personally am trying to get everybody in this group to look at that. And we're going to look at that and see if we can do that over the next six months or so. And when you get a document like that out on the ground, it's not going to be perfect. But at least everybody talks a common language and everybody knows at the start of the exercise what level of training I can expect. And of course, what does that allow? That allows the senior commanders who are looking at fulfilling all these training objectives to get to a level of training, to sign people off to go and do whatever they're going to do. You've got a reasonable understanding that that exercise construct that I've laid on the ground with that equipment is going to deliver that shape. When it's not hit and miss, people work really hard to make sure we can do that today, but we could just make that a lot easier for ourselves. So we've talked a bit about the limitations and essentially there's always this randomness introduced to the system because the laser doesn't work like a ballistic trajectory, etc. There's lots of unknowns, so what you do with unknowns, you introduce more randomness. But one of the things that I've seen is this tendency to put more synthetics around that battle because there's still things that are not represented. So that synthetic wrap, is that something you see is continuing? Yeah, and I think you open up the next big subject, actually. So the limitations, there are clearly, yeah, the obvious limitation, and I do remember, I think it was 4-5 Commando on Solsby Plane way back in the day on the first mission as we rolled out the back of Harmon Lines. Yeah, they had bulletproof ponchos up in the wood line because, of course, a laser is not going to go through a poncho. Well done there, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, save digging a trench and save building things up. Intelligent lads off the went and they did it. That's an obvious weakness of the laser, right? And your various people have spoken about how you get around this. And this is to your point, Colin, where you get a synthetic wrap and it's some form of multi-beacon or geo-pairing. That being, I understand where point of origin person firing is i understand where target end is because i know where the two are in real time and space i know the bearing and elevation azimuth of of the weapon system that's firing i know the characteristics of the round i can then map what's going to happen from point a to point b and in truth there are a number of companies have produced systems using various themes of this technology some put lots of beacons on the ground because you have a problem with rotation of the earth when you start putting sensors on weapons to determine where they're pointing and trying to keep them accurate. Four or five companies have got various systems to varying levels of accuracy to do that. The problem actually lies in modeling micro terrain in a dynamic battle space. So what is that problem? And then we'll go to where it's been fixed and where it hasn't. That problem is that I, as a six-foot-odd Anglo-Saxon male of about 14 or 15 stone, I'm so wide and so tall, and I tend to do things like poke around walls so half my body is visible or the top of my head is visible. And then because I was in the infantry, I do really inconvenient things like dig trenches or build sangers and I'll hide in maps of the earth so I can't be seen. So that means realistically, if I'm going to maintain the immersion bubble for the dismounted soldier, the moment that soldier who knows they are only sticking their head around a wall, and a wall that is protection from fire as well as protection from view, takes a wound in the left leg from a direct fire shot on a 5.56, you've burst the immersion bubble. Uh And if your target is that soldier to keep them interested and why are we worried about what they do? Well, if we want them to behave as close to reality as possible, then we need to give them credit for doing good battlefield discipline. Otherwise, why are they out there? 
And the problem all of the companies have experienced, and US's one world terrain was trying to get after that, and I'm not entirely sure where they've got to, but I know they're, they're struggling, to get a sort of sub-20 centimetre, sub-15 centimetre virtual world modelled in a dynamic environment with battle group brigades worth of troops manoeuvring around a training paddock 20k by 10k or larger with people doing inconvenient things like changing the landscape from that which you'd previously modeled is really difficult and it uses a lot of processing power to where do you put that processing power oh well i'm going to centralize it in the cloud somewhere okay but I'm now deployed in the Omani Desert, so I now need a level of bandwidth in order to allow me to do those calculations because I'm no longer doing those calculations of what happens when I shoot you on the players deployed on the ground. I've now got to send that message from the player back to XCON, do whatever we're going to do, and then bring that message back out again. And I'm doing that for every round, every interaction, every time I move more than 10 centimeters in a dynamic terrain. And whilst each little packet of information might not be large in terms of bandwidth, but in terms of latency to make that realistic for the soldier, certainly in the immediacy of close combat or armoured direct fire, that becomes extraordinarily difficult, becomes a physics problem. And given where we are today in terms of frequencies that are available, bandwidth that's been sold off to commercial telcos, you know, even Elon Musk hasn't quite fixed it yet. I'm sure for you in South Wales, you get your TV. I'm not sure you'd be able to do a whole training paddock running around <laughs> in a CTC. So that's where that solution has got to. The technical bit in terms of knowing where I am and where I'm pointing, I think is at a level of maturity that you could try and field something. But where certainly the US, I think, has run into consistent problems is getting that one world mapping in a dynamic environment to where they want it to be. Now, caveat. Where would people see it has worked? So if I take an urban village where I've got fixed walls, I've got multiple sensors surveyed in in fixed places, I've got access to permanent power, I can put a good comms bubble over that environment, then you can start getting after it. And some people have to various degrees of success. You know, we've instrumented urban villages in Canada um, to a high level using various technologies, mixture, mixtures of different types of COT technologies, actually. Bluetooth beacons, white LIDAR, various surveying in techniques. The Germans have done it in their urban villages. You know, lots of nations have done that. But moving from this fixed urban environment, getting into this dynamic open training paddock is a whole different technical question. So much so that if you look at where the US is talking about going, having invested a lot of money in what they've done so far in trying to get rid of laser, the feasibility of getting rid of laser, they're talking about going forward for the next 10 years, maybe, in a hybrid system. And that says, say, 300 meters and below with the immediacy of dismounted close combat, it's going to be laser. I just can't get around that physics problem yet. Uh -huh. I pick a range, three, six, 900 meters, include main battle tanks, don't include main battle tanks. But certainly get beyond that, call it the 600 meter range, 900 meter range, where you've got a time of flight of something. Now we might start getting around the latency problem. And invariably, if you're talking about something like a main battle tank, well, it's large enough that I can probably can model that terrain in enough time with it moving to understand if it's hull up or hull down. So I might be able to start getting off that. You still need a really good network. You still need that bandwidth and principally you still need that sub, call it 40 microsecond um, latency in order to allow those messages to move quickly enough to maintain that sense of reality. 
So, Colin, to your point, where has that virtual world gone to? And yes, we are one of the providers. We've been doing it to the British Army for a number of years, but there are other companies out there starting to do it. And that is that for indirect fire systems, all of shot, I can start putting you in a virtual world and I can start doing things that I can't do with a laser. And we've been doing that for six, seven years. I know other nations of Europe are now exploring it bringing those sort of capabilities in as are the US, Australia, Singapore. But what does that do for you? Well, in technology terms, if I've got you, I know where you are on the battle space and I know what you are and I know where something is that's trying to get after you that's got a time of flight, so I'm geo-pairing and I only need to know the terrain in enough detail that I can go from point of origin to point of impact, then I can start modeling that in the virtual world. So really what I'm doing is I'm creating a live person avatar in the virtual world. So Andy Gales is running around on the training paddock with a GPS tracker on it. And as I run around, if someone's looking into the virtual world, they see an avatar of me moving about and for the vehicles and for everything else. And that opens up some really very interesting possibilities. And that is that if I'm an observer and if I can get a network with a no elf latency and if there are some other technical things I can solve in terms of how I pass information between one point and another point, the idea being that if I put a set of binos to my eyes that are digital virtual binos, they're form fit function like the real thing, this is not augmented reality. That's a whole other question. If I look into a virtual world deployed on the training area, and I can see avatars of what I'm looking at in the real world running around on the training paddock, and I call for fire, I can also now visualize where those rounds are landing. Visualize where those rounds are landing, I can correct fall of shot of those rounds onto the target. Of course, that's a dynamic target moving around the battle space, so now you start seeing why latency becomes really important. So you can start doing that, and if I start doing that, then I can start doing a whole host of other things. You, you get into the realms of if I can provide that visualization device to somebody, Can I actually start talking about type 2, type 3 controllers? Can I start bringing attack aviation in? Can I start bringing air in? Because the observer can see fall of shot from that asset. Why not necessarily see the asset? I'm not talking about seeing the aircraft fly overhead. Could do it, but anybody who hasn't got that visualization device won't see that asset. So again, here's the trade-off. It's not augmented reality and not every soldier is going to set a glasses so they can look in. But it does allow you to start bringing in some of those other effects onto the battle space to get away from just the direct fire close combat battle. And that's the other thing the user is wanting to get after. You know, as Ukraine and we're into high intensity maneuver again, and particularly what you see coming out of Ukraine, there's an awful lot going to have to happen before Rifleman Gales finds himself on the objective. So how do I put that into the training environment? How do I find across the electromagnetic spectrum? How do I fix with my various arrays of indirect fires? How do I bring my my rockets, my air, my sensors, my drones in to fix the enemy in a position such that I can move to close with if I need to, to kill? Those are all sorts of things you can do in the virtual world with the technologies that we've got today. So there's a lot you can do, just not everybody gets to see into that world. Well, that's really interesting because that's, I mean, I've been thinking that how are our troops going to be training FPV drones that say, you know, and I was just thinking you could, you're taking those, those examples you gave, I could see a drone operator moving to the forward line of own troops, whatever, uh, deploying their drone in that simulated environment headset, assuming you've got low latency and connectivity and all the things you discussed and yeah, and just flying that, that virtual drone up and off and away towards enemy positions and having it updated in real time. It won't be perfect. And I can imagine 
as the drone gets closer to the troops, some sort of noise in the in the in the in the equipment, so the troops know that there's a drone nearby, and they can decide to take evasive action if they want to, or whatever. It's not perfect, but a damn sight better than I imagine we, we were currently managing to do with the training around drones. Well, interesting you should say that. I mean, Colin knows this only too well. So the Scopic contract for the British Army, when did that come in? 2016. That first came in to do exactly that. And its forerunner was the Creole contract. And that was replicating the Reviver balloons and where that would look. The Scopic contract that came in was originally to provide the rover downlink in a Panasonic Toughbook to an observer out in the battlefield, but also to a controller of a drone. British Army's had that since 2016. So they've been doing that, and that really replicates flying things like Watchkeeper and fairly large drones. Then you get into the realms of, frankly, what small drones can we realistically fly? And that's an ongoing conversation at the moment, certainly for the UK. And there are various of us looking to provide that to the British Army in the very near future and has been done experimentally up till this point. So that work is ongoing. The interesting thing is when you go abroad... You to do that in places like Kenya, certainly where the British Army trains and there are other nations around the world, get very nervous if guest nations start flying drones in their country. Yeah. They lose control of it. They don't want you to do it. So doing it synthetically is another way of doing it. And yes, you then have the ability to, if it's up for flying the drone, you can control what they see. You ensure they have realistic ranges for the weapon system. The other thing you start being able to do is you start being able to bring in ground-based air defense because I've now got assets flying around in the virtual world and no longer does the ground-based air defense detachment turn up to the O group, sit in the background, be completely (laughs) ignored. Because And and let's be brutally honest, and this is where I think virtual training in the live world becomes really important. Who could blame a commanding officer in the planning group in an orders group when it's just the laser from completely ignoring based air defense, EW, loop teams, elements of the artillery, because frankly, the t- system does not give you any credit for what you do. So you're not going to affect the outcome by battle. Go away and have a cup of tea, will you? Yeah. But actually, the moment those weapon systems, those platforms are instrumented in that training paddock and can therefore affect the outcome positively or negatively of the battle, more importantly, OP4 have now got those capabilities. You've got to plan for them coming at you. Yeah. You start training as you might actually have to fight rather than we're now with a close combat piece and, and you know tanks are firing on things and soldiers are running in and five, five six is winging. You know, the infantryman sitting there and, and, and admitting there's a whole host of things have got to happen before you get to that point. And this is a way of training those far more realistically. So there's a couple of other areas that are of interest that the British Army certainly are looking into. One is roundless TES. I mean, for those that don't know, mainly when you run TES, you're running blank fire. Is it blank fire or dry fire? Yes. And so a test system today, as you rightly say, the laser at the end of the barrel of that firing system is initiated often by the sound, the light, or the physical movement, or a combination of all three on the weapon system will initiate that laser to fire. That means you don't have to have a dry fire trigger. That's a little sensor behind the trigger to detect every time you pull the trigger. There have been systems when it first came out, and there are ways of doing it where you put that sensor behind the trigger, but it means a cable running around the weapon, and it's a bit unsightly, and it just kind of looks gash, really, unless you hide it properly inside the weapon. First guest to use that phrase, by the way, so congratulations, Andy. But... <laughs> just showing my age, I think, is the problem with that one. So why would people want roundless? Um, well, number one, clearly you're not using a load of blank. Okay, cost, maybe. 
backgrounds aren't that expensive, but there you go. But really, it's about leaving behind blank. It's about where you're going to train. And it's about the safety considerations around firing that blank round. Because let's not forget, even with a BFA on the end, there's a whatever it was, the two meter safety distance in firing a blank round in terms of firing directly at someone. And if you're leaving blanks behind, well, then you need to be on a military training area to train as well. So it can make training where you want to train, particularly if you are, you know, I'll go back to my lot, one rifles, you know, when you're down in Chepstow, are there some training areas outdoor? How do I get on those? Can I go training really easy? Do I have to worry about leaving blanks behind? If your reserve units, I've got an opportunity to go and train in an industrial estate. Can I do that? Well, you might be able to with a roundless system. And for its simplicity, it opens up a whole host of lower level training opportunities that you don't necessarily get with a full-on taste system because you're using blanks. But what's the trade-off? Like everything, there's a trade-off. There are various manufacturers on the market. There's one, we'll put a sound, you'll put a magazine in and the, the magazine is larger than a real magazine, but it's got a sound generator in the bottom. It's got a light generator in the bottom, but it won't do recon rifle. But it's enough to get that laser quest effect of I'm using my battlefield skills to move around the terrain from A to B. I see somebody, I shoot them. Do I get target effect at the other end? Yes, I do. Okay. There are other systems where you put a magazine in and they replace the working parts. You put an electronic solenoid in and that does the recall of rifle. So that takes it to yet another level of realism. And you get the realistic noise of that cycling of the weapon system. But again, another limitation of, well, a, a strength and a weakness of these systems how far do you take the noise such that the soldier firing it is not having to wear ear protection? So that's a positive. You might not have to do that. Okay. But I now take you to an engagement range that is more than, call it 50 meters. And if you go back through the section battle drills, I had it hammered into me. What is the hardest section battle drill? Locating the enemy. Okay. If I haven't got a realistic sound yeah. and I haven't got a realistic flash out the end of the barrel, at what point do I end up in a trade-off with my roundless system that says I've gone beyond section and fire team engagements in a relatively confined urban area or open area, and I'm now getting to something which is plural, sections, platoon, platoon plus, and my engagement ranges start getting above the 25-50 meter mark, in Andy's humble opinion, at that point, I need something that the people receiving fire can go about their drills to locate the enemy. Yep. And again, it's a trade-off. Yeah, there's a place for it. Absolutely, there's a place for it to get after the right training objectives. Yeah. It's like all of these things. It, is there right now a panacea technology that's going to take me from train anywhere I want, no air defenders, completely roundless, that can drop into a battalion-level exercise that I take out to a complex... FIWAF wooded area to train at realistic engagement ranges, thousand meters, whatever, you know, full all arms battle group. Probably not, no. But again, it's like all these technologies, it's a clear understanding of what is the training design after? What are the training objectives I'm trying to achieve? Therefore, what's the right technology blend to get after those training objectives? For me, it's never the other way around. You have to understand what you're trying to get out of the training to put the right simulation blend in to achieve those training objectives. Yeah. Some soldiers will absolutely love it because I imagine you'd have to clean the rifle quite as much. So that, yeah, that's, yeah. That, yeah. that's a, a benefit to that. As, as I'm sure there's some sort of wear and tear conversation to be had there. But then 
the training aficionado in me in terms of you know firefights are, are loud and actually being able to communicate while there's lots of noise happening is, is another trade-off there it was well, stoppage drills as well you know yeah. immediate action drill okay i've looked in there's a round in the chamber there's a round, there's a multiple feed around i'm going to take the magazine yeah. off shake all around uh, put the magazine back in working parts forward forward assist carry on but it's quite interesting hearing your position because I, th- I think you're right. It's knowing what the training outcomes are. And I used to use the same conversation around virtual reality. It's like virtual reality does not solve all solutions for everything. However, it's knowing where you might want to implement VR and the exact training outcomes you want to achieve with it. And then the question is, is the money worth it? Is the money that's time and money investment into this product worth it? Actually, do we just go back to the least worst option? Because that actually, in terms of the return on investment or whatever, it just worked. I can't speak for it because I haven't used Roundus Tez. I'd be interested to know how soldiers engage with it and how they feel when they're hearing. You used to get told off back in the day when people were maybe in the cadets or whatever, you go bang, bang, bang with your rifle. So it, uh, is it is this a step beyond that? And are, do soldiers engage with it making a bang sound or, or do they feel like it's not quite what they're expecting when they go out training? But again, I think you've said it. I think absolutely. Is it is it a step on? for home station training, going to the arms code as a platoon or a section commander, getting my people out to go and do some low-level training. Mm. I've got a, a disused married quarter. I'm not getting in the married quarter for health and safety, but I'm running around <laughs> the back gardens and we're doing some engagement. I want to practice yeah. uh, you know, the drills of taking a break in cover. I want to, at a very low level, at the fire team level, go through the section battle drills at a small range. It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. You know, you can get it out. It's low risk. It's easy to fit. You get on with it. The soldier will, soldiers will love it because they'll see a positive or a negative outcome from the drills they actually yep. apply yep. in terms of taking a breaking cover and moving around and am I aiming at a target or just firing in the air so I have a stake in the game. Brilliant for that. But there's a point at which it will trade off where you start getting exactly what you're getting after, which is that overwhelming sense of confusion, the locating the enemy, how do I communicate and all the noise, how do I get realistic ranges? Oh, no, the next level, I want people to be practicing their weapon handling drills correctly. Okay. Because, <laughs> yes, on these systems, you can make the magazines only usable once. You can induce stoppages in the system. But how do you, what is that stoppage? You, when you look at it, are you going to do a forward assist and does the weapon carry on? Do I have to take the magazine out? Can I look at rounds and diagnose what's going on inside the chamber? But like I just said, that's a different set of training objectives. So I might look at a different training system to do that. And I think all of this, these are just enablers to the training design that the trainers are coming up with. And one of the things I always harp back to is, you know, I remember back in the day, I was working as a SE2 infantry cat. And we had a subunit turn up after one of the amalgamations. And frankly, most of the command group had never been in a warrior before. Most of the soldiers had, but the command group hadn't. And it was one of those things where all fleet management, mixed training area, mixed serviceability of the vehicle meant actually they got two days on the vehicle driving it around. They hadn't even done formation orienteering inside those vehicles. So to put that training audience in the CAT simulators for the first three days, where all you're doing is looking through periscopes, was pointless. So I actually went out in the car park and we got driver, commander, gunner together, walking around as a bubble. And we started doing red, amber, green, caterpillar, wedge, right? There's your three challies. What are you looking for when you move up behind them? And we just started rehearsing it in the car park. There's still a place for that. Because yeah. for the training objectives I was after, which was low-level familiarization about what distance do I need to be off each other and where do I have to move in order to get into that formation? No point trying to do that looking through a cupola. Do it in the car park. 
right, once I've knocked that off in an afternoon, I understand that, right, now get in the cupola and try doing it in there. Because if you just sat in that cupola trying to deal it, you'd have spent a week and just got frustrated and annoyed with each other. So again, that's what I come back to. Roundless has its place for the right training objectives. It all comes back to the training progression and the training design. I think that's a good point to leave it. Even I'm still staggered how complicated live instrumented training can get. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, there's not one simple solution, <laughs> but there are many options. Like everything, you know, it's like we've got computers on our desks because you know, I'm an old git. How much easier was life when I had a notebook, a telephone, an in-out box, and a first-sight file on circulation? I've got time to think. You know, computers, if they've done anything, I get more access to more information with more stuff I've got to work through. Simulation gives you a lot more realism, a lot more choice. You still have to think very carefully about how you want to use it and what you want to get after with it. Just because it's there is not a reason to go and do it. But when you do pick it for the right thing, yes, it's absolutely transformational in the training experience. And yes, you can get people to levels of competency far quicker than you could any other way, but you've got to be considered in how you deploy the equipment or what you're trying to get with it. And that comes back, and I, a whole new topic of which I'm, we are going to close off this chat because it's been great, but um, it comes back to that education piece around simulation. And I don't think we do a good enough job with our troops and our junior officers to really get them swept up on that simulation's here, it's here to stay, it's only going to get bigger, so understand it so you can understand how to benefit from it, as opposed to even when I was in, it was still seen as something to be avoided, almost it was uncool, and maybe that's changed now recently, but, but certainly that was back then. Well, thank you very much, Andy. I really appreciate it. If there's anyone wants to kind of follow up any questions, is it best to find you on LinkedIn? Yep, absolutely. I will put that in the show notes. Colin, is there anything left from you? No, it's all from me. Well, I did say this was an education episode, and I think Andy lived up to the requirement there. We got a little bit deeper than we would do on a normal interview, but the hope of this is that people can refer back to this when either they need to gen up on what Tez or Miles is, and become a little bit more knowledgeable about it and, and specifically, you know, the challenges and constraints associated with it, which I was only semi-flippantly referring it to the laser quest for defense because that really is my kind of really what was my rudimentary knowledge. I haven't used it in depth, certainly the depth that Andy and other people listening would have used it too. So understanding the complexities associated with it doesn't surprise me that it's, it's more complicated than it seems. But I think it's an important thing for junior commanders and senior officers as well to understand that it's not just a plug and play thing and go on and get on with it. Instrumentation of live and certainly what the British Army doing with the synthetic wrap elements, it's got huge areas for continued innovation. And there was a couple of subjects which I had written down that I didn't ask Andy because otherwise this would be a two hour podcast, right? So there's a couple of things which I know that the, the British Army working on areas of sort of research or trials in this area. Again, maybe for another podcast, but I think that's the playground for the innovation. So it's not, you know, as we keep going on, it's not simply is the future virtual or is it live? Actually, if you bring that together, that's probably where the innovation lies. Yeah, and I particularly enjoyed that final conversation around the roundless TES concept because it's very easy, like everything, to throw stones at ideas. But when you have someone like Andy kind of sitting there going, yeah, yes, it's not very good at all these things. You're absolutely right. However, it is beautiful. For these requirements then you're like yeah all right i'm i'm behind it my point still stands it's still got to make 
monetary sense. Just because there's a good niche for a product doesn't mean it should be used. It's got to it's got to be taken within the holistic training requirements of the game, which Andy would acknowledge, which is really cool. But I can definitely see as a reservist recently, his example there would really sung to me. We, we, we had areas where we would go and do our navigation training or whatever that of course weren't specific decent training areas we couldn't use blank ammunition but if we had access to that that'd be wonderful this applies to many things vr might be one as, as another yeah. but conversation i was having on friday but if you could get some of this technology into the hand as a reservist because i know with preservists getting range times is a bit of a nightmare that's a, again one area of overspill from what what the the regular army are doing that would benefit the reservists if you can give reservists the opportunity to do quality training on a drill night that's how you maintain that retention uh, and recruitment yeah. and then of course we then increase the you know the ability to be deployed in the future so it's, it's a no-brainer but reservists always the poor cousin unfortunately <laughs> another excellent session so so thanks to andy we'll see you guys all next episode see you i'll see but hear you you'll hear us you